0: You're listening to Fueled, a Finstamaker podcast, and I'm your host, Katherine Finstamaker. Austin Duset began his career at Finstamaker in 2017 as a civil engineering student intern shortly before his graduation in 2019 from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, where he earned his Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering. For the duration of his now six-year tenure with our firm, And through his current position as engineer intern, Austin has been working toward obtaining his professional engineering licensure with mentorship and supervision from engineering director Jean Hornsby, who leads our water resources team. Austin has been involved in reviewing and developing flood study analyses, the design of open channel and subsurface drainage systems, and has assisted and managed the development of hydrologic and hydraulic numerical models as part of Finstamaker project teams. Most notably, in relation to today's conversation, Austin has worked heavily in dealing with Calcasieu Parish Regional Watershed Modeling and Planning. He has played a vital role in the ongoing development of a stormwater master plan for Calcasieu Parish. His main responsibilities, including that of data collection and inventory, hydrologic and hydraulic numerical modeling, the creation of a drainage infrastructure watershed report card along with the effective implementation and monitoring of the master plan itself. Austin has routinely assisted in the development of hydrologic and hydraulic models, which are in turn used to analyze the current and future flood risk and vulnerability of communities. Austin and his colleagues are also skilled in making determinations as to the effectiveness of proposed water resources projects. It is Austin's excellent professional and technical skills that have afforded him the opportunity to serve as Region 4's program manager for our current work as part of the Louisiana Watershed Initiative, the topic of our podcast this season. Having said all of that, (laughs) Austin, I believe you are uniquely qualified to speak on behalf of our engineering division and the efforts underway in service of the Louisiana Watershed Initiative. So thank you for taking time to talk with us. I've been looking forward to this interview.
1: Yeah, thank you, Catherine, uh, for having me. And I look forward to discussing these efforts with you as well as the listeners.
0: Excellent. All right. After that spiel, I have one more. (laughs) So for those who aren't familiar, in August of 2018, Governor Edwards launched the Louisiana Watershed Initiative a continuation of the planning, coordination, and collaboration across various federal, state, and local agencies in direct response to the historic flooding events in March and August of 2016, events that forced us to rethink how our state approaches floodplain management. Following the launch of LWI in September of 2020, the federal government, through the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, a grant agreement was signed establishing a $1.2 billion line of credit in community development block grant mitigation funds for flood risk reduction priorities throughout Louisiana, providing an unprecedented opportunity to enhance and expedite LWI efforts. Through the Louisiana Watershed Initiative, the Council on Watershed Management established six strategic areas to guide planning, projects, and policies toward long-term flood risk reduction and quality of life improvement across the state, one of which is data, the collection of information for the development of relevant living models of each watershed that can then be leveraged with regard to land use, policy decision-making, and project evaluation. Binstamaker has been tasked by DOTD with performing HUC-8-specific hydrologic and hydraulic modeling relative to Region 4, a very complex project that I understand you're managing quite well, and that effort will be the focus of our interview today. How does that sound?
1: That sounds great. Yeah, thanks for that, and look, look forward to discussing it.
0: Yeah, it's a lot to say, but it's a big effort and a big project, and I'm sure a lot of people, even in the state of Louisiana, are unaware of everything going
1: on. I think you introduced it well. Set Thank- the tone.
0: Took some research, I have to say. <laughs> So before we get too far into the specifics of this project, talk to me a little bit about your background, the motivation that you held to become a civil engineer, and how that may have driven you to pursue this career.
1: Yeah, that's actually interesting and probably not the typical story. You know, I come from a family not necessarily with any engineers. Um, there are no engineers in my family. I'm from Sulphur, Louisiana, which is, as I told you earlier, you know, near Texas. And I graduated from Sulphur High School before myself and my high school sweetheart came and now my wife came to Lafayette to pursue college at UL. And before I go to college and and work history, I want to focus on my younger teenager days. And I actually wanted to be a physical therapist. Don't tell many people that, but yeah, I wanted to be a physical therapist. And it was my younger teenage days where I went, actually overcame a lot of health issues. Um, My freshman year of high school, I spent at least half of it several months in the hospital and laying in a hospital bed. And so overcoming that and being around that on a daily basis, it actually flipped the script for me. Being around the doctors, the therapists, nurses, I was thankful for them forever, but I realized that's not what I want to do anymore just because I had enough of my time with it. Yeah. Uh, so I asked myself and I'm very, people know me as strategic. I have to know what I want to do, what I want to do the next day. And I plan everything's out. I'm OCD. Uh, right? And so I said, as a freshman in high school, finishing up just that year, what do I want to be now? And I was really good at math, really good at science, uh, very particular by my ways, repeat that. And so I looked at engineering through research, and civil caught my eye actually first just because of, of the means of, of the roadway, the, the transportation, and that got my interest right off the bat. So in high school, I was like, what classes can I take to find out if that's something I do want to pursue even before I get to college? That's smart. Yeah, and I actually took, got on a bus from Sulphur and went to a small school in Lake Charles and took drafting and AutoCAD, uh, which we do here, you know, at maker and as well as calculus, I started taking the math classes, and I realized this might be something I will like. So sophomore year, that all happened around sophomore year, and one of my, my best friend's dad, childhood best friend, his dad is a, a professional land surveyor and Sulphur and, and American surveyors, and it's still open today, I will, I will say that, and I said, I want to make some money. Can I start working for you? So I started working for him, and he really showed me, his name's Ricky Hayes. He showed me the ins and outs of the office and drafting as well as the field in the survey. So I was serving as a rod man for that entire summer and through some school year. So it was a good experience, and it made me realize that I actually am intrigued by this. And so that's when I said, I want to do civil engineering or surveying. So I said, okay, civil engineering, well- Funny story is I actually picked UL because in 2015, when I graduated high school, on my counselor's door, petroleum engineering was the top job and it had the big bucks by it. So I said, oh no, I don't want to do civil. I want to do petroleum. Why not make money? Well, I found out first class in college that that was not something I was going to enjoy. It's too volatile and it's just not something I wanted to pursue. So I went straight back to my civil advisor and got right back into civil classes. Didn't lose any time or anything like that. And, you know, going through civil engineering classes and actually started here, you know, right after my freshman year at Maker summer internship. And through those three and a half years, I found out that it's something I want to do and and fell in love with a lot of things about it. And I'm here today and I love my profession and don't know what else I would want to do, really. So
0: you were wrapping up college in tandem with serving an internship here at Maker?
1: Absolutely. So I started six years ago, as you stated, the summer intern. And so I worked May through August, if you will. And I actually decided to keep me on. So I worked fall, spring, summer, fall, spring, summer, fall, spring, all the way to graduation. So I never left.
0: So I'll say something about that. Whenever I was working my MBA program and also working this job, it felt like whenever I was in the textbook material in that, sort of like, I guess you could say, like theoretical space that you find yourself in a textbook yeah. and then reporting to work and being able to implement exactly what I was reading. And I almost said it was like reading in 3D.
1: The only thing is, though, is you go to school and you get frustrated because you you already learned that this part is needed, not this part. They, yeah, They want to teach you this part, but you knew that little part is what you have to take away from here. So it's actually you had to balance it. You really did. The funny thing is, and I always joke about it, we're going to focus on water resources right today. And I read the DOTD hydraulics manual and learned that front to back before I even took hydraulics and hydrology in school. Okay. So it was was odd, right? I learned how to utilize it before I even learned the theory behind it. Yeah. So it was actually cool. It helped me in school really understand the things because I knew how to put it in real life. And I think that's important.
0: I think that's a great opportunity that you had, and one that I would encourage probably for a lot of students if it's a possibility to take and, advantage and, of opportunities
1: And since like that, that, I've I've spoken to classes at UL since oh, then great. as a um, you know professional here, and I preach it more than anybody you ever know, just because I knew what I had here, and yeah. it's important for others to have it.
0: Well, that's really nice. I can always appreciate people who are willing to kind of pay it forward and and mentor. Yep. Okay. So you mentioned water resources. Obviously, that's you know what we're focusing on today. So what about water resources work do you find particularly interesting? As many facets as there are of civil engineering, is there something that piques your curiosity or satisfies a passion that you hold with regard to water resources?
1: Yeah. So to be honest, to be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. I strive to be a complete engineer. And when I say that, it means... I want to focus on multiple disciplines, not only water resources, and be stuck. And so I've always said I wanted to learn as much as I can about every discipline, and I owe it to myself, right? That's by no means mean an expert in all disciplines, uh, by far that, not expert in anything, you know, but I want to gain that knowledge. I want, if somebody comes to me, a colleague, a client, and asks me a question in any discipline, I want to be, a, at minimum, point them in the right direction, yeah. you know, and I, I that's important to me. So I've tried to open it up to where I can focus on everything, and I've done that over the past six years. But to hit on water resources, I had the honor to work under John Hornsby, who you mentioned is Maker's water resource director for six years now, and she chose me as an intern, and I came with an open mind, and the first projects I went into were actually in-depth water resource projects, and so the first one was actually a no-rise analysis, you know, and so... That's eye-opening in itself to understand like, wait, wow, you can't raise the flood levels even if you want to do a project anywhere. That intrigued me off the bat and, you know, went on to a drainage impact analysis to hydraulic model, which we'll talk about today and and so on to subsurface drainage to open channel flow. And I told John after the first summer, I think I have an issue for this. I, I like it. Uh, it yeah. intrigues me. And I think this is something I can see going in my future. And I want to stick with it is the thing that caught my eye the most is water resources is in every project. And it actually makes the decisions for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. When you buy a house, yeah, everybody should be educated to look at flood insurance, right? Absolutely. Those maps that's made by engineers. And so it goes in everything, you know, the roadway elevations, bridge elevations, that's based on flood levels, your developments. You got to make sure you're not impacting other developments and everybody around you. So it was fascinating to know that and understand I wanted to be in every project that could, that's just my nature. And so I knew that was probably a good way. And one thing that I've always said, and I learned from Sean and several others is water doesn't see political boundaries, right? It, it doesn't just stop at the border. It, it, you know, it doesn't stop at Lafayette to, to Scott. It all goes together. It's, it's getting somewhere. Right. And so it always has to be studied and, and it's never going to go away. That was fascinating.
0: Yeah. I think, I guess conceptualizing water and like the water table and precipitation and the elements as I guess like omnipresent in life and yeah. in projects, and I guess it would be the downfall of a project to not consider it at the front absolutely.
1: end. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and and water resources. When we say that, and we'll focus on H and H modeling because that's what Louisiana watershed it is. But water resources, your water supply as well. Yeah. It's not only just your stormwater. So it's a lot. It's a large aspect.
0: Our task orders for Region 4 of the Louisiana Watershed Initiative were signed in January of 2022. So we've been at this project for basically a year now. Were you always slated to run Point as Region 4's program manager on the effort? Or is the role you're in now something that you grew into over the course of the project? And then as a follow-up to that, what exactly does being Region Force program manager entail?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, actually. And we did get our task order uh, notice proceeds for this work in, like you said, January of 2022, so mm-hmm. roughly a year. Um, but I do want to state in 2021, we were actually working on the very first task order. Oh. We were scope writing. We are writing the scope that we're actually performing now. Okay. And most important thing, right? You got to have a schedule. Uh, you got to have a budget. You, you got to have people. And, and what, what is the effort and yeah. something to go Got to have a plan. Yes, absolutely. So I wasn't really a big piece of the puzzle. Um, then I was working on other projects and it became crunch time, but, to be frank. And I was getting a little available and got pulled on that project. And like, we got to write the scope, right? And I took that opportunity and, and it was intriguing to, to, to take that lead. And we got those scopes out and we, we got them approved with DOTD back and forth on things, you know, money, surveying, engineering, everything. I had to really talk with surveying our surveying department and get on the same page to assure the level of effort was there and plan for that. And so that led into when we got the notice proceed in January, I can truly say one of the most familiar ones with the scope, right? Um, I, I had a lot of Obviously with the team, we wrote it, but I was in that effort and I was asked to be Jean. Jean is the technical lead of region four, a big responsibility, right? You're responsible for all of these models that we're creating for, for the state. That's a big deal. And I was, I was going to be her assistant is what I would say. And what that would entail, Jean's busy, right? We know Mm -hmm. that. And stay in the weeds every day with the modelers and make sure we're on scope, make sure the quality's there and we're getting the best product for the client started as that. And then with Dax and John, um obviously trust in me and in guidance, I took over a large role and began to take that and and take that opportunity. and I was hoping to run with it, right? And you know I really appreciate the guidance and also the trust that Fence to Maker has in me as a young engineer, everybody, not just Dax and John, but everybody to to run such a large project. And so, Go back to your question of what does the program manager do. It's a funny question. I would just say just think of anything and everything and I feel like that's what's being done. But to break it down, there's more people than you think on this project is it's not just internal. It's we have the client, we have the reviewers, we have our subconsultants, and we have the internal team, and we have field guys. So it's really I'd say in one sentence, the main job is to keep all of those people, all of those parties on the same page with quality, with the scope, with budget, with schedule all in mind. And I really think in one sentence, that is my job is to assure that we're on the same page to get this project completed for the state at a, at a high quality level.
0: That's some high level functioning you got going on there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of moving parts. For sure. So basically project management.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would on say it's just because it's such a technical project and you have a scope. There's so many parts and I know we'll talk about it. I'm sure eventually is there's even more people than just us on it. Um, right, so right. It, you got to balance that as well and in, in state uniformity across the state. So it's it's a challenge.
0: Well, I'm sure you're learning a lot from this challenge. and
1: Constant growth, for sure, and and, and learning every day.
0: Good on you for taking the opportunity, saying yes. So we're working on Region 4, as you mentioned, in conjunction with several subconsultants, including Michael Baker International and Half Associates. How has that collaboration been, and how are you navigating the intricacies of those subconsultancy relationships?
1: Yeah, in simple terms of... the communication with Michael Baker and Half & Associates is fantastic. And I I truly mean that is we set ourselves up with a great team with Michael Baker and Half. They're both well-respected companies um, that definitely put their A team forth. And it makes it really easy on my communication being that we have a lot of trust in both of those companies. And they've shown that and earned that. And so it makes it easy for me to communicate. I, I will admit, I've probably called them one too many times a week but I don't regret it because I think it's kept us on the same page. Yeah. Um and it really has and and again I I'm going to say that over and over is that's what's important about this project is H&H models you got to share your lessons learned, your your tricks. It the software is changing every day. Everything's changing, evolving all the time. So you got to keep up with what you learn and if you don't share that and you just set a wall between you and say you know, hey, we're three different companies and we compete for work sometimes, right? right? But this time we have one goal together and I think that's all been clear. You know, we're all professional and working together. And so we, we share stuff with each other and that's the only way to move the ball forward.
0: Yeah, so teamwork. It,
1: yeah, it's been very well. And I'm I'm excited to keep working with them on this project, but also work with them on future work. Forever that's got excellent. those relationships.
0: Yeah. Well, good relationships. I mean, especially... With other firms, it doesn't pay necessarily to be adversarial, mm. and you so know get you nowhere. Yeah, and in just professional life, you know, holding on to your knowledge f- as a mechanism for control or something like that, it really doesn't stand in service of the organization that you work for. And in this project, like you said, to it, to engage with other firms,
1: and my my key has always been communication is what I putting myself on and, and what I strive to have the best communication because I think as an engineer that goes a long way um, if you're stuck in your office and and not sharing your secrets or not trying to learn other secrets or gain relationships you're probably not going to go as far you know in those relationships I've gained with those folks at half and Michael Baker I think will stay my entire career I feel like I can call some of those people even if the project ended today call them in three months from now and say man I feel like you probably saw something like this what do you think and yeah, I think it'd be respectful, you know, so.
0: Yeah. And that knowledge sharing is so important as well. And I know like inside of an organization and in a project like this, the biggest asset to an organization and to a project is the knowledge of the people who are working on it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And for them to share that effectively and to be the person to kind of grease the wheels of having that happen is a really, I think, a critical learning lesson and a really great skill. That you're building. Okay, getting more into the technicalities and logistics of the projects. We've been performing survey work, collecting cross section and hydraulic structure data at strategically placed locations within limits of six hydrologic unit code eight or HUC eight areas of Region Four, specifically Whiskey Chitto Toledo Bend Reservoir, Lower Sabine, Upper Lower, and West Fort Calcasieu. These areas combined cover a large swath of land touching a nine-parish region reaching from DeSoto to Cameron, and not only do we have boots on the ground, we've got a ton of data collection and analysis being conducted to feed the hydrologic modeling efforts. So how many people are participating in this project? How many different teams do they comprise, and what does the workflow look like in this massive collaborative endeavor? the big, yeah. big question.
1: Big question with a bigger <laughs> answer. I'd say, you know, we just got done talking about the sub consultants. Obviously we have half and Michael Baker and that's not even mentioning the internal team. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have a survey in engineering, uh, a part of this project, you know, surveying, we are actually surveying for region four five and six. So we're surveying three out of seven regions We are the only prime consultant, over one of those seven regions that are doing full survey as well as modeling. So that's a large effort, and and that's pretty cool to say. Um, But what does that mean? There's there's a lot of people involved, a lot of boots on the ground, like you said, and a lot of people um, churning on this project. So to break it down um, and and, and bear with me is internal team, we have, okay, survey, field, and office, right? So we have roughly 10 two- to three-man crews. That's 25, 30 people there, boots on the ground, working, hard on this project and they've done a phenomenal job of, of getting this data as fast as they can with even you know hurricane hit this area um, that we're dealing with so they've encountered challenges more than you can even imagine and those guys are important and so that data is actually coming to survey office which I would say roughly 10 personnel let's say in the office for survey only gathering that data reviewing the data processing the data after that data is processed it's actually coming to myself Okay, it's how us have it set up, and what kind of tested something. This isn't done on projects in the past, but we've been growing a GIS team, and we have roughly you know six, seven, eight employees that were all focused on at LWI lately. And so, what I did there is our schedule is so crunched. If I got to pick the timeline and the state didn't get to pick it, and I laugh about that, this would have been several years, right? Instead of hey, let's do this in this many months. Okay, so usually we would survey before. Most time, complete survey, hey, we're done, survey, gives to engineering, and then we start doing our engineering work modeling the project. Well, this was such a time crunch. I needed things to happen concurrently, not necessarily sequentially. So how could I do that? How could they keep working and gain gain ground while they're going through so many survey issues and, and weather and everything that is hard to rely on to some sense? is gis I, I say they're my middleman right i would get that data and we would, me and gis had processes that they would take that data that's process reviewed from survey point data and really the focus is making it a surface that goes into this modeling to the engineers we make a lot of surfaces here whether if it's on a roadway project water resources mean anything
0: when you say, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but when you say make a surface, are you talking about like a digital elevation model?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Exactly. Yes. And so, what? And and that's a great question, Catherine. Is what surveys gathering us gathering for us is data within the channel uh, for these these models, and they're getting that point data and making it a clean, smooth surface that can be entered into another lidar or DEM of surface to to have a clean surface and so they're working on that concurrently While the modelers the engineers are already have thoughts together going through issues working on things getting the engineering part set of it so right when that's ready that gets educated immediately and gis having that team has been exceptional it's awesome to see how that worked and i think it's been a success in, in my eyes of, of trying that and so naming all those people it finally gets to the actual engineers, the modeling team. And we have 6 hook HUC-8s, which you mentioned, you know, hydraulic unit code as HUC, so there's 2, two 4, 6, eight, 10, 12. And as the number gets higher, the area actually gets smaller. Okay, oh. so a hook 8 being, it, it is very large. I mean, you're talking 700,000, 1,200 square miles. Okay. Um, to put that in, in perspective, this is models that have not been created. We're, we are talking, we create a model in your backyard, a lot, but you're talking a hook eight level model is large, so we have six hooks under our scope of work, and so there's six teams, obviously, right? One of them is half an associates, okay. One is Michael Baker, so at least four fence maker internal, okay. So we're in charge of four of those, leading that effort, and each team, uh, I have a four, so four teams. They're all broken up. Every team has three engineers. So there's a hydrologic component. One person is in charge of that. There's a hydraulic component. Uh, part in one person in charge of that. And then I like to say the third person is what I would say is a utility man. And I played okay. baseball, so I, I say utility man, right? Is that person is very important. They're working on something different, possibly every day. Just what is needed for both parts. You know, those okay. people are saying so focused, but there's still so much more to be done. And so that is jumping everywhere every hook has a hook lead, the person with greater experience and and time under their belt and and experience with these models. So that person is kind of in charge for leading that effort um, hook specific, right? And so (laughs) naming all those people, that's... If you add invoicing team, because it's a large, think large project of all these people on it, it's a lot of money you're spending, right? Absolutely. That's large invoices. of uh, The review team itself, all these things have to be reviewed by certain professionals and sign off, John and other professionals, right. DAX and, and so on. And so I think adding that up, quick math, that's 65, 70 people of just fits to Maker, right? Yeah. And you think subconsultants, I know for a fact, both of half and Michael Baker have 10 plus people on this project. So what does that put us, 85 to 100 people? Yeah. And kind of saying that, doing the quick math, it's a little scary, right? 100 people on a project and you asked what does what the program manager do earlier is... Got to keep those 100 people on the same page.
0: Yeah, you got to round up 100 people and make sure they know what to do.
1: With one goal um, yeah. and ensure that quality work is done. And, and, again, we're sharing secrets and and yeah. and, and keep those things moving. And, I, look, I wouldn't have been able to do it without the great team I've had, hands down. I can thank them every day. I don't think it's enough. But, you know, Bradford leading the survey efforts in, in, in the field coordination, Joe Broussard. Fitzmaker has a great team, and I said Michael Baker and a half do as well and us together I think has put a strong foot forward.
0: That's awesome. I think about management sometimes and and that's essentially what you're doing project management is kind of you got to wind people up and make sure they're in go, headed in the right direction. And so that's like, that's quite a bit of people to wind up and, and keep tabs on and make sure they're in the right direction. So big yeah, kudos and, to you. You
1: can't micromanage. You got, you got to trust and, and let mm-hmm. people lead as well and give them opportunity and more opportunity. And sometimes you have to rein them back in, but it's important. And these H&H projects, it is important in any engineering project, but H&H, like I said earlier, it, it changes all the time and it's not always... And that's kind of what I liked about it, even at a younger age, six years ago, is there's not always one answer. You can do it three ways and somebody's going to do it different. A lot of people don't like that, but I I like seeing other people's thoughts and learning from that. And you can bring your thoughts forward too and see which best situation is right. It doesn't necessarily mean it's always right. It's what works, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting, but you know, that's all the people on the project. It's a lot.
0: It is a lot. Big props, Austin. So look, talk to me a bit about how we are amassing all of this data. What tools, what technologies are we using? You mentioned GIS to collect, process, analyze, and present the data being collected from the field in the form of cross-section, hydrographic surveys, hydraulic structure analyses, etc. How is the field data being converted into a digestible, useful set of information for the client?
1: Yeah, and I would say, Catherine, for this one is we had to be innovative.
0: <laughs> you can plan,
1: plan for data as much as you want. You can keep planning. You have to plan, but you're going to hit a wall, yeah. and, and especially with a project large like this, this is something that nobody's really dealt with before. This is massive, and there's conversations all, every day of it of where this data is even going to be stored, right? And I'll give a few examples. You know, One that comes to mind right off the bat is surveying in the field. For years now, we actually evaluated as the surveyors go out, they they obviously get uh, topo information, you know, elevations for us, but they're also evaluating that culvert and bridge for us and letting us know what is the full structure of it, right? And Mm -hmm. so because we we need that for design purposes, right, and to Mm -hmm. be able to put that in a model. Well, we used to do that via pen and paper, if you believe it. I can believe it. Yeah, I know. (laughs) uh, But pen and paper, that would actually take – several days to even get to the office right because they're out of town and once it got to the office they review it mark it up whatever necessary changes go back it would take months say to even get to the engineers that need it really several days ago and so what we did there is we actually used uh, you know geospatial applications survey one two three to be exact and you can make an application on their phone they're able to actually punch in all that data and it comes instantaneously to the office so what does that do for us? It allows the, the survey office to review almost instantaneously and give it to the engineers within a day or so, right? Yeah. That's very fast compared to several months to a day or so. Yeah, pretty uh, close to real time. Hour. Yeah, exactly. It is a real time app and that's the important thing of it. And it obviously it helps with this review process, but I think it's a better product for the client is what is important as well is think you got a whole bunch of papers. Okay, put them in a binder, I guess. Maybe scan them in. I don't know. But really, what we have now is if you go to a dot, a geospatial, it's located in the right location. It has all that data with the dot as well as imagery to visualize. And it's all in the right place. It, yeah. and, and that's important because if you do it a paper, you're just going to call it Catherine 01 and say, hey, where's Catherine 01? Let's look for it, you know? And right. so now it's all in a geospatial location, and brilliant that that's it's just pretty good. And I, we have GIS folks, we have engineers that I think are are hitting a all time high with with innovative. I'm not oh. tech savvy, honestly. We have some folks that can blow your mind utilizing code and and visualizations and and softwares that make processes speed it up by you know five times the the effort in yeah. which that saves money right as well as it's a better product for the client and that's the important thing I got to make sure is if you spend this time developing that what comes out in the end and visualizing the product these complex softwares that that's cool you know yeah and so that's one example you know I'd say another one is is we're serving a lot a lot of bridges in, in culvert structures within the state right mm-hmm. and You could imagine these major structures are along major highways. Yeah. I mean, you would think high traffic counts, right? You True. uh, You you drive on I-10. Well, we're surveying some of those structures. You go, how do you survey that? How do you traverse that and put your crews out there to to gather that data in a safe manner as well? Well, we're actually laser scanning the great span bridges, the large span bridges that have high traffic counts. So they're in a boat or off land actually laser scanning the data. That's That's fascinating. And- I'll be honest, the modelers, the, the, us as engineers, we don't necessarily need all of that data for these projects, right. for, for, the, for the water resource project. But what we did for the client there is we just gave them, you know, point clouds. That's a lot of data. Yeah, who could
0: refuse that?
1: They could utilize in the future for any project they want, right? Mm. So that's a better product as well.
0: And while you're out there, I mean, killing multiple birds with one stone, delivering the client with more than what they asked for, that's relevant and useful for future projects.
1: Sounds like a win-win. And I think one thing to lastly to point out here is, you know, I think technology and innovation of what we're doing is these models are so large. We've actually, our IT department has had a jump in on this project. So I could make that number earlier from 100 to probably go to 110 now, but- these models are so large and it has so much data sets in it. We've actually had to get new computers up storage. I'm not tech savvy and I appreciate the people that are And our IT department has done a great job and, and other engineers, but we wouldn't be able to keep working on the project and hit schedules and, and, and deadlines if we didn't adapt to what we're faced with. And yeah. so we've hit several challenges and we've overcome those and that, that's, that's really cool. To see that because you don't ever think of that I'd never think hey we got to get a new computer to make this model run but it, it, it's you very well have to so
0: well it's almost in a sense like this project is forcing us to kind of upscale our hardware and back-end systems and forcing us to rethink processes and so a challenging project like this makes us all better it
1: does which is great. A lot of things were said in forth in this project. I stated a few things earlier. I was testing things out. That's scary, right? Hey, you got a hundred people, you got a deadline of the year and biggest project right now, probably. And we want to test things, right? That's scary, but putting the right people there and, and it's worked out. And I think obviously you hit snags, but we've overcome a lot. So it's going well.
0: Yeah, you know, I was kind of poking around in the database a little bit to see who kind of the heavy hitters were and putting hours to this project. And I definitely saw our GIS folks putting a yep. lot of time to this project, which I thought was it very interesting. I had an opportunity to go to California with some of them. Yeah, right. And yes, and see all the technologies that are on the horizon from our partner esri which is the underpinnings of all the gis that we do here well not all of it but you know a good chunk of it so just seeing what's on the horizon as far as gis and what's next
1: it's just mind-blowing it is mind-blowing that's the simple answer it yeah can't gather
0: and those guys were running around the san diego convention center going to all these technical presentations and learning all of the intricacies of you know like what new buttons to hit and even like discovering time savings in their own workflows. So not just in the overarching sense of, you know, saving time from a big picture, but even in the weeds of these, like the technicalities of the software and how they're being enhanced and, you know, how something that used to take five hours now takes five minutes. And it's just a beautiful thing. Everything rolls so quickly in technology and evolves so fast. It's it's just amazing. It amazes me at every turn.
1: Yeah, it does. And putting those GIS people some reason they have different, different side of the brain than engineers and it's engineers. Well, I, I have to admit, you know, Coy, we have several people on staff GIS that I'll tell them, be in a meeting like, Hey, we need to do this. We need to put it in Excel and stuff. And they're like, Hey, and it goes, like you said, five hours to five minutes. And I'm like, that's why you have those people in the room and they Absolutely. think differently. And they just think process driven, you know, and they think how fast and with the same quality or better quality. And yeah. that's important. And that's why I said earlier, but having them as the middleman has, has changed the project dynamic. It's, it's been good.
0: We've mentioned hydrologic and hydraulic models several times now. For those of us who don't know much about the intricacies of water resources engineering and as much in layman's term as possible, can you fill us in on what exactly are hydrologic and hydraulic models?
1: Yeah, yeah. Bear with me here. Big
0: deep breath. Okay. <laughs>
1: Sh- short answer, one sentence. I'd say it's a tool that uses a lot utilizes best available data to assist in decision making on drainage related policy programs and projects. That's a simple answer. Doesn't talk about anything other than drainage projects policy. But I, I do want to break down what a hydrological and hydraulic model is, and like you said, hopefully layman's terms. Okay. So think rainfall, okay, radar data. You watch the news, right? Yeah. Weatherman, hey, it's six inches today and in this area, right? Think that rainfall. We take that actual rainfall and we, we make sure it rains on land, right? When you're driving home, it's raining. You're on a roadway. It's raining on buildings. It's raining on ground, open pasture, everywhere, right? So that is the hydrological side. And we take actually that rainfall is the ground. Some of it, and I don't want to get too technical, infiltration into the ground right? Reaches water table. But what we're really focused on is what's left on the ground. We call that surface runoff, right? Okay. So it's water that is on land, it's going through pastures, it's flowing off of buildings. And that's really the hydrological side. We're taking that runoff. That's the, the key thing. And then we have to put it to the hydraulic side, right? So the hydrologic comes first. And the hydraulic side is that water has to have a place to go. Okay. You, you drive on the road, it goes into catch basins, it goes into pipes, it goes into ditches eventually goes to channels, it goes channels like into major rivers, and then it all goes all the way to the Gulf in, in, our, in our instance, right? And so there's culverts and bridges and, and stoppages within those channels and rivers, and that's the hydraulic side, the conveyance of the flow of coming across those bridges and culverts. So I don't I don't know if, uh, if it broke it down a little bit.
0: Okay, let me try and say it back to you, because that's how you know that you've communicated your message effectively. Okay. So the hydraulic aspect of it is what's coming from the sky. That's the atmospheric hydrologic hydrologic part is, okay, that's the part that's coming from the sky. It's engaging with built and unbuilt features on land. And then the hydraulic side is looking at what potentially man-made aspects, impervious surfaces, things that we've dug out or built to manage the flow.
1: Yes. Spain's as low as hydraulics in simple terms.
0: Okay. And then, so you're looking at those two aspects aspects as dynamically engaging with one another. And when you can set it up to test different scenarios, that's the model.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Got there. (laughs) Great. And and there's there's many, many different types of H&H models. What I'm explaining in best detail today and in, in layman's terms is mainly what LWI is, is focused on. You know, you can, there's softwares to just do subsurface drainage and stuff. But mm-hmm. what we're really looking at is all that water, like I said, the rain coming from the sky, running off and finding its way to a channel. Mm-hmm. We're focused on those channels, okay. you know, and that's what flood mapping is, FEMA flood mapping. And that's similar to the purpose of this project is we're looking for water levels Okay, at, at the end. We're looking for water levels at the end of it, and what goes to that is the rainfall running off, finding the channels, the channel, the water, and in, in the, the conveyance of flow is is coming across bridges and culverts, and it's messing with the water levels, right? Okay. And so, at the end of the day, you get a map with water levels mm-hmm. for different scenarios. You okay. Can run any scenario you want, you can run. You know, for instance, this project is geared on you know the 2016 floods. We can run that, or we can run a design storm for whoever a client is, or we can run the event that might happen tomorrow. And, mm-hmm. and so that it's the complex part of it. Yeah. And, and I hope it's broken down enough. But again, it's, it's a tool that eventually, I mean, once completed, is going to lead to and assisting with decision-making on the projects and the, the policies mm-hmm. uh, for the municipalities and state and, and the programs of buyouts and open space conservation and things like that. It's okay. it's the tool that makes us educated enough to make those decisions.
0: Okay. So you could look at what if we built a levee here, or what if we added a bridge structure here, or if we increase the size of the box culver here, Absolutely. and then you'd be able to rerun it and yep. say, does this help X number of people in this community to not flood?
1: Exactly. And that's what you go to your client for. And that's what you're these models are tools for the future, right? Mm-hmm. And once they're developed, we we make sure they're they're in sync, right, is the best way to say it. They're calibrated. Okay. Know? And they can be used for anything. Like you said, upsizing bridges, culverts, whatever, replacing them. Um, I mentioned no-rise analysis earlier, stuff like that. And even looking at the policies and programs, you know, if there's a buyout program, who's even worth that like right right you have to have some cause benefit data to it as well yeah. right there's all about data it, because if you just said hey catherine you're you're the mayor of wherever buy awesome homes or go upgrade culverts
0: yeah which what ones what culverts what, what yeah
1: your size which ones are not like which ones do we not need to mess with you don't want to just go do it because right you have this much money right and you need to make the best bang for your buck so that's what those tools are used for and, and i hope. Uh, for you and the listeners, explain it. That, that 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 was a tough question. So,
0: I think so. I think you did a good job. You'd make maybe a good teacher.
1: Oh, thank you. Actually, <laughs> I, in, in my my next life, I do think about being a professor.
0: Well, you could do adjunct work. You ever thought about that?
1: Yeah, I guess.
0: Maybe one day when you're not wrapped up with this project,
1: I, I would. I would. <laughs> man, wait until this is over. <laughs>
0: for sure. Okay, so you've worked on many different projects over the course of your career. Can you tell me about the aspects that make the Louisiana Watershed Initiative unique? Perhaps beginning with the fact that it's a piece of a much larger, essentially multi-billion dollar puzzle that will serve to inform, as we were talking about, the next several decades of action taken to mitigate flood impacts in our state and region.
1: Yeah, and I think it's even important, you asked the question perfect, to rephrase it. To to say it again is, this is many pieces to the puzzle of multi million dollar, billion dollar project. And you know that it's I worked on Calcasieu Parish Master Plan and I think you mentioned that earlier that was very eye opening for an entire parish to have a, a true master plan and study and it's still ongoing and, and finishing that up for them. That that was eye opening. But there's something different about this one. The state that I live in, in in Louisiana is I'm a part of building the tool for the future. You know, and that's unique in itself, right? And to be a part of that and to build on that and for the future. And we talked about a lot, several times about the implementation that will happen later based on this tool. So, you know, one thing that always stands unique out to me too, when you ask that and you say say that first thing that hits my mind is this project is very unique. I, we've been mentioning a lot of people, right? Yeah. A lot of people on the project, even internally, externally, but even from the client's perspective, their client is, you know, Louisiana Department of Transportation and Development. Louisiana DOTD is not necessarily they would admit this is not what they're experts in, right? They're transportation and development, yeah. You know? And so they've actually have somebody under them, and they go by the TDQ. It's called a Technical Design and Quality Team, okay. and it's made of several experts, local experts, as well as very experienced other consultant firms that are essentially reviewing our work. So that's unique. That's really different because you know most projects are set up, and we we even have reviewers. Internally, Fenstermaker, we have reviewers at half. We have a whole review team that signs off. And then usually after that it would go to the client, right? And the client might review it, um, as well, which you know, dtd would. Well, we actually have somebody that is outside in looking at your work, even outside of yourselves, uh reviewing that work. And I think that's unique and that's a dynamic. And it actually took a little while for for those and you know they're professionals and they're PhDs, they're, they're experts in this field. And it took us a while to get on the same page a little bit. And it's been great also working with those guys and learn a lot from the experts. It's good to see what they're thinking because they have this wealth of knowledge that also they're looking at your project. They might know more about that area than you, or you might know more than them, but it's it's unique. And I think that's one thing that stood out to me. It started as a challenge and it continues to be a challenge, but I think it's, it's worked out. And I know the state you know, has them for a reason and to assure quality product is getting to the state. So. Yeah.
0: Well, smart.
1: Yeah. 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 If you're not
0: the expert in the space, hire a team of experts to make sure quality is there. And then I guess the scrutiny on your work could make you even more proud of what you're pushing out. You know, when you get that green light or that stamp of approval, you really know that you done good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because you're, you're, like I said, you we're going through detailed, detailed reviews, weeks and weeks of reviews on it before we even get it to them. And so it is actually proud moments of an entire team recently is we got basically no comments from them. So that says, a hey, we did, we did something right. You passed that oh, fine
0: yeah. tooth comb. So
1: it is it, interesting. And I would say that's unique about this project.
0: The Louisiana Watershed Initiative has put together modeling standards to ensure the heterogeneity of the statewide effort. Now, does it blow your mind that different consultants working over seven regions statewide will be responsible for separate sets of information that will then be stitched together on the statewide level in such a way that will allow for effective decision making with regard to, again, statewide flood mitigation master planning?
1: You're right. It's mind blowing. Uh, <laughs> you stated that, and I can repeat that several times. It' working on this project every day, like you said, for over a year now. I still don't understand how. How are we doing this? How are we? Are we really staying uniform and all doing the correct thing? Or like is somebody doing something really right? And are are we off? You know, it's mind blowing. I think about it every day. But I'd say what confident about of what we're giving the OTD and the state level a great product all around is the seven consultants, the prime consultants, we, believe it or not, even though we're all competition, we go against each other on other projects, even this project, we're putting our qualifications together against each other, is we communicate more than you can ever imagine. We have calls set up weekly, monthly, whatever it is. And I think that's what kept this going is the communication aspect. And I've been saying that over and over. And it's important because I mentioned we, we got tips and tricks, lessons learned. Hey, we went through this already, y'all through that. We're actually I said water water uh don't see any political boundaries. What does that mean? We're we're sharing water back and forth. Yeah. Uh, so the communication, the collaboration has been important and I think that makes me confident and, and, and assured that the state, D O T D is getting the best project quality. I mean it's along the scope and we're uniform and, and, and they're getting what they truly deserve.
0: So it's good to hear you be so confident about it.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, I think it has been good. Again, the collaboration, sharing a lot of, a lot of things that it's kind of mind blowing. You wouldn't think, you know, we would all share that much. And I've said that a few times, but some hidden secrets, you know, deep down, sometimes high level things, but sometimes very deep of, Hey, you press this button and then, you, you know, it, and it's a lesson learned. So it's pretty cool.
0: That's great. Talk to me about what it means to you maybe this is why the ease of communication, maybe because you're all working on behalf of something bigger than yourselves, something bigger than the individual firms. But what does it mean to you as a citizen of the state of Louisiana to be involved in a project of this scale and significance?
1: Yeah. And I think I said it earlier is creating, it's an honor to be a part, you know, leading Region 4's efforts and be a part with the entire state of making our tool for the future. Again, I mean, I can Say that over and over. It's it. You don't think about it much when you're so in the weeds. But to to sit here today and think about that, it really is cool because you want to assure that the state you live in, right? Even the city you live in, even the the development, the house you live in, is it, taken care of. Especially as an engineer, that's really all you think about, yeah. right? Is like my house going to flood? And to to help the state get that and lead such a large effort, it's an honor. And I think that's the best way to say it. And I don't think about it enough that way, but reflecting on that, I'm just glad I have the great team I have and the right people in the right seat on the team and and have those 100 people I mentioned to help lead us to that end goal, which again is getting the state a quality product, the best product they could imagine for the state's tool. So
0: That's neat. Yeah. The true meaning of perhaps civic engagement on the next level or a deeper level and something that'll reverberate for decades. Yeah. Which is so cool.
1: Yeah, and I, I hope you never want something in engineering world projects to end up dying, right? Like right. they get shelved. And I just hope for this you know, spending again the state's been obviously mentioned millions of dollars on it. I hope that they keep getting updated with new available data and, and they get enforced in the community and people are you know, Build on these because we're building these at a hook eight level. If if you want to look at your house, Catherine, we got to put more detail in yeah. a certain area, right? And I hope that continues. And I think that's very important that these things don't get shelved and they get built upon because they're very large right now. But we need to break them apart possibly and 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 make them even better for whatever that area may be.
0: Good thoughts all. What do you value most about the teams that you're leading while conducting this Region Four effort? What lessons have you learned? And you've mentioned a few from a project management standpoint. What takeaways are you going to carry with you? And this is maybe a complex question, but what advice would you give to anyone who aspires to lead teams of this magnitude?
1: Yeah, yeah. I would say for, to answer the first is what I appreciate of the team most on Region 4 and the, the, the folks I mentioned today is the willingness to adapt. And that that comes to mind right off the bat when you ask that question. Because I can't tell you how many times we've changed this. We had to rerun this. We crashed this. We ran into a wall here. We redid this. I asked them to redo it just for this a certain reason, you know, over and over again. And in a respectful manner, obviously. But the willingness to adapt has made this project keep going smoothly, you know. And I know sometimes it takes... They might have to run it on a Saturday, or or it because we hit a wall or whatever. And to adapt to that and move on, I, I, everybody showed me that on the entire team and everybody I've listed. And that it's been an honor to work with. And, and I couldn't do it without the team, obviously. And that's that's important. And I know we mentioned the project management side, and i mentioned communication probably ten times today. And I still, this project, um, as a young engineer, I always focused on collaboration. And and I'm actually we can sit here and talk all day. It's what I love to do, but this project made me realize that communication actually is the real key. If you don't communicate, collaborate, what what's the point? You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna fail at some point, right? And I would say, even with your colleagues, you get you got to be open, communicate on what the end goal is, when it should be done by. If they don't know that, how will they ever know if they're succeeding? You're gonna go tell them that they're wrong, and be like, "Wait, what?" I've learned that you got to communicate and make sure they understand. And like I said earlier, maybe repeat it back like, hey, we got to do this by this date and this and this and this because communication is the key. And I would say even with the client, right? Mm -hmm. Engineers, I think you get every engineer here in this office and they would say things do go wrong, right? They they do. And maybe even more than right sometimes. And so being open with your client is important too. Yeah. uh, of, Of telling the snags you've hit and this might not even be the thing they want to hear, right? And But being open to communication, be out front and, and don't hide that and get on the same page. That's what I think a young engineer going to, you know, project management needs to know because it's scary to a sense, right? You never yeah. want to fail, especially when you've given this opportunity at, at maybe a young age and you want to succeed. Is like, oh, wow, we hit a snag. How do I tell somebody? I don't want them to be disappointed in me. Just like you don't want your parent or your spouse to be disappointed, Right. And so being open, open communication is what I would say is one of the most important things.
0: That's great. Those are all good lessons. And I think also just talking about giving advice to to younger engineers to aspire to be in service of projects of this magnitude. I think it sounds to me like the work that you've done and the sheer number of people that you've touched, even in the... I guess you could say like the lower levels of even the engineering division, like think how many people that you've lit up, like think how many people that you've given opportunities to and that you've given mentorship. And I I just think that's a beautiful takeaway and something that maybe you can be proud of yourself for for to know that you've taken this lead and you're inspiring Mm -hmm the next generation of of engineers behind you and kind of paving the way for others to have opportunities like this. It's really neat. Absolutely. Okay. So we have arrived at our closing question. One that I ask all our guests in the spirit of fuels, our podcast name. So please tell us what fuels you in general, in life, career, work, family, what drives you?
1: I love the question. Actually, I would I would ask that on any interview. I think think it's a good question. And what I'd say fuels me is success. And I know that sounds like, okay, what do you mean? And that's my family life. That's my home life as well as my career, right? There's many ways to, to measure success as a dad, as a husband, as a godfather, as a brother, as a coworker, a colleague, a boss, a manager, region four program manager, right? There's many ways to measure success and it You really have to rely on the family, whether if it's your colleagues, your fence to make her family or your team or even your home family. And for example, when I go home and my two and a half year old daughter runs up to me and says, I love you, daddy. And thank you, daddy. That's a win for me. That melts me. And that keeps me going, right? And on the other side, if we hit a big, a big win with this project of we, we hit a deadline, the client's happy. That's a win. You know, wife, we have a good relationship every day, day in, day out. That's a win, right? And so I take wins for granted sometimes, and I think that's why i make sure I key in and understand what wins I have, whether if they're small or big, because that's what leads me to success is that one win after another, and it leads you to the next win, whether if it's small or big. So I, I definitely have the success in the family life as well as a career. You know, that's what fuels me is those wins.
0: So I'll make one comment on that, is that in academia, and maybe you'll agree with me, in going through school... You have a paper, you have a test, you have a deadline, you hit it, you yep. get that reward, and then it kind of gives you some wind in your sails and then on to the next thing. So next- and, you know, you're getting that constant feedback in the form of good grades or a pat on the back from your professor or your teammates or whatever it might yep. be. And in work life, there's not always going to be that concrete feedback, to that that loop to let you know that you're doing a good job. And so I think it's really beautiful that you're identifying ways to pat yourself on the back and to celebrate your incremental wins you have to. along the way.
1: You have to. And, and, and obviously, even talking about this project that we have for the last hour is, it's over a two-year span. So technically, you're not really done with that deadline until two years. Yeah. Or do you think you can sit there and go day in, day out, work 40, 50 hours a week, get frustrated and never see a win? I actually struggle with it. I'm going to be honest with you. Jean is a good one to come in office and say, think of that as a small win. And I'm like, ah. But then if you sit there and say, that is my win. And then I get home. And like I said, my, my daughter lights me up. That's a win. I, I keep going, right? Yeah. And, and, and hope for the next one. And you got to take one day at a time played sports mall life and it was always take one play at a time so in life i take one day right yeah and look for a win in that day and i think that's what what fuels me to keep going
0: thank you so much again for being here and for sharing your knowledge and courage and yourself with us so yeah. i appreciate it thank you
1: so much Catherine and, and, and fence to Maker. i'm excited to be on the podcast and talk about a great project
0: thank you